Evening in John chapter 16, we'll look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, we indeed could spend quite some time on this, but that is not our desire at the moment. But we do want to point out what our Lord has instructed these men that will come for their aid. And so as we think about what we have already considered in John 15, as we made our way through that chapter, we learned that our Lord expressed to them that he indeed was the true vine and they are the branches and his father was the vine dresser and the Lord would prune and do what he needed to do to enable those who were attached to the vine to produce more fruit. But those branches that were attached um, and did not bear fruit, they would be broken off and cast into the fire. Now, Jesus told them that for the very reason of bearing fruit, he chose them. He called them out of darkness into light. He called them into his family and into his kingdom to bear spiritual fruit. And as he instructed so much to them, you can only imagine how much they were, or I should say how many questions they were having come up in their mind that they maybe wanted to ask the Lord. But in chapter 15, we saw that Jesus told them what they were to do. Now in chapter 16, Jesus focuses on what God is going to do for them. And we want to begin by what Jesus reminded them of. And I'm going to give you a few headings this evening. The first heading we'll deal with is in verses 1 to 4. We simply see confliction. Confliction. Jesus reminds them, he says, these things I have spoken to you. In verse number one, well, what are these things? Well, that just simply points back to chapter 15, verses 18 to 25. Jesus had already described to them how they will endure hostility and persecution. And he tells them here in chapter 16, verse one, that he spoke all those things to them to keep them from stumbling, to keep them from stumbling. Now, that word stumbling just simply means to go astray or get caught up in kind of a trap. Now, pretty much you could say that they could never say Jesus never told us it wasn't going to be easy. Uh, they couldn't say that. They couldn't say that Jesus told us it was going to be easy. They couldn't say that. He had given them strict warning that they would should expect persecution and hostility. Uh, Jesus did not want them to follow him in a delusional way. He did not want them to think that following him would just be grand with never having any problems whatsoever. Sometimes people get caught up in the message of the prosperity gospel, I would say, to where there's health, wealth, and prosperity, and feel like that Christian call, call to be a Christian is a call to um, grow in all of these aspects of health and wealth. And then they soon find out that Coming to Christ is not, that's not what that means. Um, Jesus never strayed away from telling us that those who choose to live godly lives will endure, suffer persecution. Jesus did not want them to live a delusional lifestyle. Jesus does not intend for you and I to live a lifestyle where we think that we will never have to give an account, so to speak, or make a defense of the hope that is within our, our hearts. There is a cost in following Jesus. One of the early church fathers, his name was Tertullian. 
He said it this way, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. <laughs> the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Brothers and sisters, there have been a lot of blood spilt over the years. Church history is a fascinating subject. And as we go back and you begin to look at those things, you begin to realize that following Jesus cost people their very lives. For you and I to have a copy of the Bible in English cost people their very life. Following Christ comes with a cost. Now, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, that his life, the life he lived, he was dying daily to himself. Dying daily to himself. In other words, when we come after Christ, when we put our faith in him, and become a follower of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, our life is no longer our life. Our life is his life. My life is no longer about me, but it is about him. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. For it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus speaking said to his disciples in Matthew 16, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. One of the earliest historians said, you knew when a guy was carrying his cross, if he was carrying a cross out of the city, you knew that he wouldn't come in back. And the reality for you and me is if we picked up the cross to follow Christ, you know that life being about me, 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 me is over. It's about following Christ. Jesus said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He even asked this question. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus was straight up with these disciples. He did not beat around the bush. He did not hide the truth. He let them know up front what to expect. They would be hated. They would be lied about. They would be talked about. They would be treated wrongly. They would be mocked. They would be cursed. They would be betrayed. And eventually, every one of them would die because of Christ and their witness for him. But what did Jesus tell them in verse 4? He said, these things I've spoken to you so that when that hour comes, you may remember that I told you about them. I thought about old Peter. You think Peter remembered what our Lord said to him? <laughs> well, he wrote two books. And in that writing, he said in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised when fiery ordeals come among you. Wonder where he heard that from. He heard it from his leader. He heard it from his Lord. Do not be taken off guard when trials and tribulations come, which come upon you, Peter said, for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. Keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. That's the call for the Christian as you step out in faith to follow Christ. There may be those that ridicule us. They may be those who hate us, despise us, lie on us, curse and mock us. You may even have family or friends betray you. 
But brothers and sisters, what Peter said is very true. When these fiery ordeals come, remember the joy we have in our Savior. I don't know if you know the name of John Patton. He was a missionary. And get this. If you've never read his biography, you need to read it. John Patton was a missionary to the cannibals. Cannibals. In New, uh, uh, New Hebrides Islands. Back in the mid-1800s. Some of his writings and his journal, he would write that he lived. Well, not that he lived, but that he may stay a day or two in tops of trees. Trying to escape the notice of these who were trying to take his life. He described a time where one man tried to kill him with an axe and another man stepped in to save his life. He, he said this, Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not from one brief hour when or how attack might be made. And yet with my trembling hand clasped in the hand once nailed on Calvary, and now swaying the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and resignation abound in my soul. It's a pretty incredible thought, is it not? He said, now in his trembling hour, his hand laid, grabbed a hold to the hand that was once nailed to the cross of Calvary. And in those times that you and I find ourselves there as well, may we realize that the very hands that were nailed to the cross on Calvary's hill are the very hands that hold to you and me. J.C. Ryle said to count the cost is one of the first duties that ought to be pressed on every Christian in every age. Counting the cost. Jesus gave a parable one time. He said that a wise king would not go forth to battle until he first sat down to do what? Count the cost. In other words, it would be foolish to do such a thing. Jesus reminded them here in verses 1 to 4 that they would indeed be confliction. He had already expressed that in great detail in the previous verses there ending out chapter 15. But Jesus didn't want them to be caught off guard. And brothers and sisters, in the application of verses 1 to 4 for you and me, let us too be warned in the wisdom of the words of God that may we not be surprised when fiery trials do come. The second thing we want to consider this evening is verses 5 to 7. Not only do we see confliction, but we also see confusion. And notice verse 5. He said, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But I've said these things to you, and sorrow has filled your heart. But I'll tell you the truth. It is, not, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When I read verse 5, it took me immediately back to what transpired in John 14. You remember one of the questions that was asked in John, thir uh, John 13 and John 14 was, where are you going? And Jesus says here, in this moment, none of them had asked him again, where he was going. Peter asked him in chapter 13, verse 36. Thomas had asked him in chapter 14, verse 5. And now Jesus says here in verse 5, I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? 
From the moment that they heard Jesus was leaving, their thoughts were consumed about themselves. All they could think about was how his leaving was going to negatively affect them. I don't know if we catch that, but Jesus knew their very thought. He knew that these men were not really worried about all of what he was going to walk through that he had revealed to them. They were more worried about who was going to take care of them. They never once considered all of what was falling on the shoulders of Christ. They were filled in verse 6, he said, because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart or grief has filled your heart. That word in the original language is just simply meaning that the expectations they had of Jesus had failed. He, they thought, just like a lot of the other Jews, that Jesus was this great king who was going to ride in on this, this uh, white horse and overthrow Rome and everything was just going to be great and grand. And all their expectations, they had laid down their very livelihood and all they knew to follow this man. And now he's telling them he's leaving. They were sorrowful in their heart. They were grieving, not because their savior was going to be handed over to godless men, but because their supply chain was going to be cut short. And what you and I need to know as well, brothers and sisters, that is very sobering in my opinion, is Jesus knows our hearts as well. You know, the Lord knows our hearts when we come in our prayers, when we come in our petitions, when we come with our concerns. The Lord knows our hearts. The Lord knew these men's hearts. But I find it so encouraging that even though Christ knew the hearts of these people, He never once stopped dealing with them. <laughs> he never once just gave up on them. He never once just walked away and said, I tell you what, y'all just do it yourself. You know, he could have in this time really just said, you know what, I, I'm done. Y'all not worth it, sort of speak. And, you know, you think about all that could have transpired. But the Lord knew their heart. But the Lord also, as I've shared with you before, as we study the life of Christ, his life is one that is exemplary of compassion and mercy and grace and forgiveness. He told him in verse seven, he said, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. You know, we, we might have a hard time understanding why would Jesus tell these men that it was more advantageous for him to leave them than to stay. Uh, some of us would probably struggle with thinking about that if we're honest, you know, because we think about someone departing maybe that we love and it is hard for us to gather that, to you know, really comprehend that. And I think it may have been that way for, for these men as well. But unlike one of our loved ones dying and departing this world, when Jesus died and departed and was raised and then ascended, he sent the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit came to be their comforter, to be their helper. If Jesus did not go away, the Father's wrath would not be satisfied. In other words, he, the wrath of God would never be propitiated on the cross. The disciples would not be cleansed. The sacrifice would never be made. And the Holy Spirit would never come. But for all these reasons, Jesus said he did not stay. But he goes away so that the Spirit can come. 
And I don't think Jesus is bashing them for their response to what he has delivered to them. He's simply trying to turn their attention away from what they're feeling regarding to what they've heard to what yet was to come. Boy, isn't that what he does for us every day? Jesus works in our hearts and our lives the same way he did for these men. I think if we're all honest, circumstances tend to place us in our emotional dwell, dwellings for the day so much more so than the truths of God's word. Circumstances seem to uh, be what steers us more than what God has written. Uh, circumstances can affect us in so many ways. But God's word, brothers and sisters, never changes. Circumstances change. And what these men were struggling with was thinking that the man they loved and had followed and hoped so much for is leaving them. To them, that was just, that was not good. <laughs> but Jesus said, it's so much better for you that I leave and the Spirit come. So the Spirit stays and goes with you. And the works that you do will be greater in number and done further and further out into the world. Jesus wanted them to know that. And instead of, uh, in, instead of them being caught up by the current situation, he wanted their eyes to be focused on the hope of the future. Is that not the way the Christian should walk? I, I thought about 2 Corinthians 4. The Bible says, therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Our focus should not be on the circumstances, but on the hope that we have in Christ. That's easy to say, isn't it? That's very easy to say. The third thing we see is not only do we see con con confliction, not only do we see confusion among the disciples, but the third thing we want to see here this evening in verses 8 to 11 is conviction. Conviction. Jesus said here, when the Holy Spirit comes, when He comes, verse 8, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. We must understand that the choice that is being discussed here is not between Jesus being present and Jesus being absent, but rather Jesus being present in body and Christ now coming being present in the Holy Spirit. The latter, Jesus says, is far better and Jesus is explaining to them that when the Spirit comes, this is what He's going to do. He's going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now this is critical for our understanding. The Spirit of God, when He comes, He must do this work. If sinners are left to themselves, then no one can ever be enlightened about the sin in their own life. If we're left to our own self, then we all think we're pretty good. If left to our own self, we all think our righteousness is pretty good. But the Bible says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. It is not good. It falls short 
of the glory of God. A scripture tells us that as human beings, as sinners, we are dead in our sin. Not only are we dead in our sin, but at nature, we are children of wrath. Our understanding is darkened. We are excluded from God. We, our, heart, our hearts are hardened and we're rebels toward God. That is our condition. So who then is their hope for salvation? Is it man we're trusting in or is it God? Brothers and sisters, if we're sitting there hoping that our loved one is just one day going up and leap from the pew and say, hey, I think I need that today. Left to themselves, there's no hope in that. Our hope is in God doing the work for a heart that is darkened and a mind that is corrupt. The only hope is for the work of the Spirit of God to bring bare on that heart conviction of sin. And left to ourselves, we're not just up in one day going to go, hey, you know what? I'm a pretty bad person. No, we're not going to think that about ourselves. Only the Spirit of God can bring about the knowledge that you and I have fallen short of the glory of God. And this is what Jesus said he's going to do. Notice what he said in verse 9. Concerning sin, why? Because they do not believe in me. This is our condition. And this is who Jesus says the Spirit of God comes to bring light. He says they're going to, the, the Holy Spirit's going to bring conviction of sin. And that sin is the rejection of the Son of God. Uh, he's going to come and, and as we think about that, let me just think about that for just a moment. You know, some picture man just hopefully one day is going to exercise his or her own power to come to God. But brothers and sisters, that is not the way the Bible teaches it. The Bible says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me does what? Draws him, draws him. Now that word draw, convict, pull. There is no one coming to God unless the spirit draws him. Unless the Spirit does that work in his heart. The system of the world hates God. It doesn't want God. It, it doesn't want God because the light exposes darkness. And God said here that the Spirit would come to judge and convict about sin. And that sin is rejecting Jesus. Did that happen? You remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up to preach. And what did he preach? You have rejected what? The Son. And 3,000 turn from their sin and trust in the Messiah and are added to the church. That is the sin that will condemn you to hell, is rejecting Jesus Christ. The Bible says also here in verse number 10, that in concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. In other words, when the Spirit of God comes, He will reveal to that individual they've been rejecting Jesus. But also the Spirit will reveal to that individual that they have no righteousness of their own. That the righteousness they need is the righteousness of Christ. Now I hope for you, if you have a testimony this evening of a time in your life where you were lost, but then you've been saved... A time in your life where you were dead in your sin, but God has awakened you to spiritual life, that you think back to the Beatitudes where it says, Blessed are the poor in what? Spirit. Those who realize that they have nothing. 
Those who realize that they are bankrupt of the righteousness that God requires. They're blessed. And the reason they're blessed is because the Spirit has opened their eyes to that very truth. We don't realize that we are spiritually bankrupt on our own. This is the work of the Spirit of God graciously opening our eyes to see our condition. That man born blind in John 9, did he heal himself? No. Could he open his own eyes? No. It took the work of Christ to do those things. Not only that, but notice verse, uh, verse 11. He says, And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged, not only does the Spirit come to bring knowledge of sin and that they've rejected Jesus, not only does the Spirit of God come to bring to our knowledge that we need Jesus' righteousness, but the Spirit of God comes to bring to our mind the remembrance of the judgment that Jesus put on Satan. You remember in Colossians 2.15 when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them. Having triumphed over them through him. On the cross, the cross stands as our victory symbol that Satan has been overthrown. He's been disarmed. The strong man has been bound. The Christ is plundering, so to speak, as he told us in Matthew 12. The church is advancing, gaining ground. The kingdom of light will grow and the kingdom of darkness will fade. Well, what else will the Spirit do? Not only will He bring these things for those who are lost, He will convict them of sin. He will convict them of the righteousness they need and He will bring to their mind the judgment that has come upon the evil one. But the last thing this evening, verses 12 to 15, there's also communication. Communication. Verse 12, he says, I got many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus knew these men. He knew that their minds were probably racing. No telling how many questions they had by now. He knew he couldn't continue to unload all that he wanted to on them because it was just so much. In verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. In other words, the Spirit of God will communicate to them or will convey to them the very things that Jesus has already taught them. I've heard this verse used so many times, I would argue inappropriately. I remember, and I don't, I don't say this bashing that mindset, I don't, but I remember, you know, there'd be certain ones that would say, well, well um, you know, talking about Bible translations, well, if you can't understand that particular translation, you just lost, because see, it says here that the Spirit's going to teach you everything. <laughs> and I just want, I wanted to say, well, let's sit down and have a quiz, shall we? <laughs> How many's going to ace that bad boy? <laughs> you know, all of us, we're in a continual learning state. Uh, the Spirit of God illumines the Scripture to us. Uh, it's not talking about a particular translation. It's talking about what these disciples heard Jesus speak. And when the time came that they needed to be reminded of what the truth Jesus spoke to them, the Spirit would bring it to their mind. 
And I'm thankful today that he does that for you and me when we need him to help us recall something in times of our need. Whatever it may be, you may have memorized a, a psalm that, you know, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they, they comfort me. Uh, you may be those that hold truth. We, we are those who hold the word of God and God brings it to our remembrance. Not only does he do that, but he helps us learn the word through teaching and preaching and studying. God does these things. But contextually, these men were needing to be reminded and helped. Oftentimes, Jesus would tell them these things and preach the sermons. But now it would be them and only them. And Jesus says, but I'm not leaving you alone. The spirit will be with you and he will bring to your mind the things I've taught you. The things I've instructed you. And notice verse uh, 14. He, the Spirit, will glorify me, Christ. Now, again, we could, we could, t we could just park here for a long time. But that's not, the, that's not the need. But let me emphasize this one point here. We have a pandemic going on and has been for a long time of, I would argue, just the abuse of the Spirit of God in the sense that if you've, you know, you, um, you may come across ones that um, everything they do is about the Spirit. The Spirit, 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 the Spirit. Um, and, and what the Spirit does as far as in, in their worship. Um, I, I don't know how exposed you are to some of this stuff, but you can, you know, YouTube is the gateway to everything. But you can find so much on there. But, you know, these, these, these movements that, uh, you know, the more they laugh is evidence of the Spirit moving in them. They're drunk in the spirit of laughter um, so much of this stuff goes on. You'd be surprised at how much of an impact it has even uh, within uh, our own space here, I should say. Don't miss verse 14. The Spirit was not, did not come to bring attention to the Spirit. The Spirit came to take our attention to who? Jesus. So if someone's ministry or someone's service is more uplifting of the Spirit than of Christ, then they've got the purpose of the Spirit and His coming wrong. The purpose of the Spirit of God is to turn eyes toward Jesus. The worship of believers is to be Christocentric. In other words, centered on Christ. And only the Spirit of God can take a sinner and direct that attention toward him. Uh, don't miss that verse. It's a critical verse. 
Jesus says in verse 15, all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Again, the Trinitarian work of the Father, Son, and Spirit. I wanted to close by giving you Paul's testimony of the Spirit of God, okay? So turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and this is how we'll close out. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, I, I don't typically do this. <laughs> I brought another translation of mine. Uh, um, and, and I think most of you have this one, the CSB. Uh, I think most of you do. But I'm going to read it just because sometimes uh, these translations, again, some are a little rough, I would say, and some are more smooth. And, and when you read it, you know, it does jump off the page and, and present its meaning to you. So I, I want to read it from the CSB, uh, the Christian Standard Bible. But it says uh, in chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 1. This is Paul's uh, testimony of the Spirit of God working in his life. So he says here, when I came to you in verse one, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Verse 6. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom of God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of his, this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. Now, let me stop right there just for a moment. I have, I have done a funeral at this church since in the last seven years. I remember, and it wasn't just that one particular funeral. There's been others, but I've heard people, you know, people have certain verses they quote, they're ready to quote them at, at any, you know, get drop of a hat. And, and this individual quoted to me, this verse that I just read in verse number nine, you know, someone, I think he said, it was kind of like, preach what you know good today. And I said something, he said, well, I know this, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, you know, and, and a lot of people use that verse thinking about heaven, you know, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, or no human heart has conceived. God has prepared these things for those who love him. So in other words, that's our hope. We're going to see something our eyes hadn't seen and so forth. And the, context, the way in which he used it was referring to the hope of heaven after you pass away. As oftentimes, as my wife has tried to teach me to bite my tongue so much more often, that's not what the verse is talking about. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 2 here, notice what he says immediately after that verse. Verse 10. 
Now, God has revealed these things to us. How? By the spirit. So the very thing that Paul speaks of, of what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, or no human heart conceived, that God prepared long ago beforehand, the Spirit of God has now brought to our mind the truth of these things. And, you know, just, I wanted to say that, but it's not the time. Since the Spirit searches even the depths of God. Notice verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except his spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. But notice verse 12. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God. Why? Why, Paul? Why have we received the spirit of God? Verse 12. So that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. So what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what has not entered into the heart of man, what God has prepared, in other words, was the gospel. The gospel, which was a mystery of the ages that has now been revealed and made known to us, the church. Shout for glory for that. The Spirit of God has illumined this truth that you and I would know Christ the Son of God, the Savior, who's come for you and me. Paul said that's how the Spirit has worked for you and me. The Lord could have said, I tell you what, I'm going to leave you to yourself. But He didn't. The Spirit of God has opened our eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ. And that's his job. May we thank God for the Spirit of God who gives to us the knowledge of the Son of God. For without him, we know none of this. Now you say, I don't believe that. Jump down to verse 14. The person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit. So in other words, if the person is without the Holy Spirit, it don't receive what comes from God. Why? Well, Paul tells us. Because it's foolishness to him. <coughs> and he is not able to understand it since it is spiritually evaluated. So in other words, without the work of the Spirit, the mind of the flesh knows not God. So if we know Christ tonight, may we thank God for the convicting work of the Spirit of God who opened our eyes and our minds to the gospel, which tells us the story of the Son of God. If you hear this evening, it is the Spirit of God who does the work of God in the hearts of His people. My prayer for any person that is lost is, O oh God, 
May your spirit draw them. May your spirit open their eyes, renew their heart, and save them. Our hope is in the work of the spirit. May we thank God for that glorious gift. Let's pray.